Welcome to Altus Insights podcast series with Ray and Marlin, hosted by me, Avi. This podcast will cover monthly market updates and construction cost impacts across major markets in Canada. Welcome back to another Altus Insight podcast with Marlon Bray and myself, Ray Wong. Today's topic is on residential land prices in the Greater Toronto Area. Affordable housing continues to be a hot topic, not just in the GTA, but across Canada, especially with the expected record immigration that will impact us over the next few years, fueling the increase in demand for, for housing. At the same time, we have also seen housing activity, both sales and listings, drop in the past year due to housing affordability, rising interest rates, the changes to the government housing policies, and the, and the concerns of a possible recession. With all of this, our focus today will, will be to discuss the various factors and the impact on residential land prices and availability of product in the GTA. To help us sort all this out today, we are joined by Mike Chesahowski, Vice Chairman at CBRE and the founding member of the Land Services Group. Mike has over 35 years of industry experience, has been involved in the highest profile transactions in the GTA, and his market knowledge is unsurpassed. We also have today, John Galuzzo, Senior Director, who leads our land valuation team at Altus. John has over 25 years of industry knowledge and is a preeminent expert in land valuation in Ontario, having worked with numerous lenders, high net worth families, developers, institutions, and pension funds. Um, so we're going to uh, start with an overall topic. It's a sort of a current state of uh, the market from uh, uh, a brokerage and valuation standpoint. So Mike, you want to get started with what's your take on the overall um, um, GTA land market, um, you know, based on some of the transactions, um, what you think with pricing, and anything that you want to sort of uh, sort of uh, give us a briefing on the market from your your perspective. Sure, Ray. We're we're still busy. Um, certainly, uh, transactions are happening. I think there is a flight to quality from our purchasers, both institutional and uh, private individuals, private companies. They're still out looking, they're still buying. That said, people are being a little bit more cautious. Uh, We have not seen a price adjustment as yet on the face value. Where we've seen the adjustment is on the terms that purchasers are demanding and are receiving. A little bit larger VTBs, a little bit more interest-free period, longer conditional, longer closing periods. So, you know, price did adjust, but it happened through BTBs rather than the face value. But our private institutional purchasers are still looking, buying and closing. Okay. John? Yeah, I mean, from from a valuation perspective, definitely far fewer transactions to analyze and, and to support our numbers. So it, it is uh, de- definitely a little bit more uh, gray area today than it would have been, call it 12 months um, um, and for that period prior. And similar, we've been seeing similar to what Mike had just mentioned, effectively, uh, the deals that do end up closing usually have paper 
uh, provided back various terms, but favorable. And, and that's, I think that's a key element here that the only way these deals are happening now that lenders are taking somewhat of a back step um, um, to borrowers that might not be their preeminent relationship um, borrowers, um, that they're not going to be stretching um, the mark um, just to make a deal happen for the sake of making a deal happen. Uh, they're going to be a bit more um, um, focused on only doing the deals that make sense uh, from their perspective um, for, for developers that have a bit more of a track record than, than others that may not have that track record. So from our perspective, we are definitely um, analyzing deals um, with the intent that absorption rates for anything that uh, either is entitled or not yet entitled will definitely take longer than it would have um, um, now and for the next 12 months, for sure, until we start seeing some real activity happening. And, and another thing we're missing is we haven't had too many condo launches um, um, come across. And, and, and we know for a fact that those are all in the works and, and with many of the major players in the GTA waiting for a fall market to, to launch. So with, with you both mentioned sort of the limitation of credit. So especially if you're looking at alternative um, lenders that you are paying a bit of a premium, but how do you make some of these land prices um, or sale prices work based on increased construction costs, um, increased labor costs? And land is a, is a big component of the overall development. And vendors, I don't, I don't think they're, they, they want to reduce their, their pricing. So where do you think the pricing is? And does it really justify some of the, especially the housing projects going forward in the next three to five years based on the development cycle? Not if you want to launch tomorrow. And I think John alluded to this. I, I think the... the the real desire for, for our development community is for stuff a little bit down the road. Certainly um, on the single family, um, stuff two, three, five years away is, is still in strong demand. If I had something that you could launch tomorrow, I think people would still perform it launching a year from now, even if it could be launched today. It's the same with condo sites. I think people still want to take it through the process themselves and add value through the entitlement process. But, you know, I, I don't think we can make sense of the last year of sales for buying a piece of land today that we can launch today because it won't. Because you can't judge absorption at being very slow and making a site work. We have to look at a longer-term picture and what we believe absorption will come back to. That being said, both a few of the single family home developers and the condo people that we've spoken to recently are seeing an increase in activity like the resale market is since last month. John, uh, any comments there? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with what Mike um, had mentioned. And it's almost like a wait and see attitude. If, if the spring sales market picks up, and I, I really truly hope that it does, 
that will definitely encourage more projects to come to market, which would help. And, um, and the, listen, the proof is in the pudding. Without those pre-sales, we're not going to see much development happening. So um, it, it, it's a matter of a wait and see attitude to see if the come if the purchasers step up step forward um then we'll we will definitely see some more activity but you expect that as early as spring because i think most of the clients we're talking to on delays they're talking fall even spring next year and then there's a handful and they're all trying to avoid each other seems to be the general gist with the spring launches no one wants to jump on top of each other unless i i think to the point made earlier they're looking long-term construction projects versus stuff that might be quicker yeah, Marlon, I think you're referring to the high density, like the condo yeah. market. I think the low rise guys, I think the purchaser profile of the low rise, they probably have bigger deposits, bigger down payments. They may not be as interest rate sensitive. It might be their second home. So I I think there's um, definitely different market dynamics between the low rise and the high rise side. I, I think... Those of us that have been around a bit know that all it takes is two or three good launches on either high rise or low rise, and everybody's rushing back into the market to sell their units. And I think everybody's watching that resale market very carefully and all the headlines that are quite positive on the resales and all of a sudden there's bidding uh, wars for resale homes. I think if we see one or two good launches for each, and I think there's going to be a couple of people that that launch over the summer, I think you'll see a lot of people rushing to open those sales centers again. Yeah, okay. especially with anticipation of um, the the interest rates that they, a lot more people are, are sort of um, trying to figure out the, the pricing and, and trying to get in a little bit earlier before there's a rush, especially with if, if there's there is that anticipated um reduction in interest rates. And I agree. I, I I don't think we'll see that until sort of mid to late next year, even though inflation is starting to be a little bit more um, controlled and it, it is hitting the right direction. I think people are, are sort of betting that, look, they've been on the sideline for for X years, some of them. And then you have that, that, that aspect with uh, affordability that once people sort of get back and, and there's a lot of people still looking for homes. You just look at the rental market and, you know, less than 1% in the GTA that people are just waiting. And, um, whether, and with the price adjustments, I think we're going to see perhaps that flood. But Marlon, do you think we're going to see that flood that once once that uh, there's the, the interest rate signals that it's, it's going to come down, that some of these projects that are, are on hold right now, that they're going to actually proceed with it based on the performer numbers? Yeah, they're just waiting, but I think we're a lot more tepid on the speed it comes back at, and it feels more like it's fall into early next year that we start to see the the, the comeback in the market. Obviously, the resale coming back online, uh, and it's the supply-demand imbalance. I suppose if the condo market stays, the inventory is okay-ish right now. Um, if it stays in the okay-ish range, but if that starts increasing more and more, then price has to come down, and price can't come down because the performance doesn't make sense, and that's the the challenge we're running into and that's why you haven't seen new construction come down yet is there's nothing left in the pro forma to give and it's the same even on the low rise side obviously some of the large builders have got a bit more flexibility but a lot of people have made money out of the service lots when they go into actually building the homes there's no cash left in building the homes 
And I think there's that balancing act as construction prices level off through the year, interest rates either stabilize or marginally come down. I think that's when the market will let loose. And yeah, going back to the Atlanta aspect of it, Mike, what are you telling your clients that you know, overall residential land activity is down, um, everything's on the investment side is down from um, 2022 to, um, to uh, from uh, 2021. But are, are you advising them on certain price points or do you think there's some movement there for the, the vendors? How are you trying to, how are you navigating them through this this process with higher interest rates, costs, and um, as well as, I guess, sort of living a product on the market still? That's exactly it, right? There, there is very little product on the market. And when you put out something that's half decent, certainly there's not as many bids as there was two years ago. But the big traditional players are still busy bidding and still chasing it. I think I've seen more proposals that we put out to sell land where the vendor ended up sitting on their hand and doing nothing because they're unsure of market timing, what to do. Our purchasers, we're advising them to to step up because all of a sudden there isn't 10 people that they're bidding against. There's three. So those numbers are a lot better. And our traditional players are big enough that they need to keep that machine fed. So they need to be buying. Um, Sure, there's a small percentage with pens down, but overall, I'd say 80, 85% are still pens up and are looking for opportunities. There's opportunities not so much through a reduction in price, but much better terms. So land prices up or sideways or? Sideways. John, your comment on that? Yeah, I would say it depends. (laughs) And uh, it depends. I agree sideways for sure. Um, and by it depends, I mean, if it's a trophy site, there are enough deep pocket developers in the GTA that would jump at that opportunity. So it really depends on the type of site that we're valuing. If it's something where there's a lot of competitive supply in the area, not so much, maybe even a, a downgrade of five to 10%. If it's something that's in limited supply, I can see it uh, definitely sideways, but with terms. So how does that work? If, if a supply is availability is down and there's, and um, well, I guess that there's less bidders for pricing to go sideways. And Mike, your, your comment with um, with less sites available and selling. And then when you throw in what the government is doing with the green belt, right? Um, is that is that cause is, is that part of the cause with uh, some of that tweaks on the green belt and allowing for some of those lands to be developed that's that's causing that increased supply to the market? Or what do you, what, what do you think the, the the impact of the green belt uh, policy changes are? Well, it, Ray, it's so early and we're, we're still trying to grasp how quickly this land's going to come on stream. The government said they'd like it in some form of development within three years. You know, it's not quite clear what that means. Does that mean that I'm putting pipe in the ground or does that mean I'm building a house or does that mean that I have my plans into the municipality? 
So we're still kind of walking that through. Nothing's going to happen quickly. Uh, we had a large piece of land out and we sold it that were released from the green belt recently. And there was great activity. So certainly based on that, uh, I don't see the release of green belt being large enough to really affect the market. I think it's going to be absorbed in. If anything, we're just trying to catch up to, you know, demand that's been occurring over the last two decades. I, I would concur and add on to what Mike said. I mean, if people really zero in, we, we have the mapping um, in our office in terms of the actual lands um, that were removed from the Greenbelt. We are not talking about thousands and thousands of acres here. We are talking about a, a nominal amount of additional lands. And, and the biggest portion is out by Ancaster. And I believe there's another portion out by Durham region. That's it. We're not talking about material acreage that is going to move the needle in terms of supply of low to medium density uh, residential lands. So uh, I think on that side uh, of the market, um, if it'll just at least provide some, some much needed product, um, um, on the low rise and medium and, and uh, medium, sorry, the low density and medium density side of the market. So right so, now then, the way we're looking at is it, I think Mike mentioned the word opportunity. That's sort of the thing we're hearing back from a lot of developers too. They see this as an opportunity, the same on the construction side. We know prices are sort of sideways or stable, so it's a good time to be in the market. So then as as we do see the government policy to, you know, we want to build a million hour homes, that, doesn't that basically mean if you get land now, no matter what, it's going to go up in price, almost close to guaranteed, well, within reason, because there's going to be a massive supply-demand imbalance as we move forward, or have enough developers built up enough stock that we're good to go for the next 10 years? You know, as long as I've been in the business, Marlon, I keep on hearing there's enough supply. There's enough. Yeah. Oh, we got 20-year supply. Until four years later, we burned through three quarters of it. I just, I think municipalities and regional governments and the province have a hard time understanding out of that 100 acres, how many homes can I really build? On a perfect one acre, I can have 70, 50s. But there's no such thing as perfect. And I have school sites and parks and roads and floodplain and green space that eat into it. So I think, I can't remember who it was, I think Madme or someone did a study, and out of 100 acres on average, they're probably only getting 50 acres of development land, if that. At the yeah. end of the day. So we talk about releasing 1,000 acres or 500 acres. At the end of the day, a lot of that land is not usable anyways. So I think with the you know, immigration and the pent-up demand, we're going to be blowing through a lot of land very quickly as fast as we can build it. And I don't know how fast we can build it. Well, again, that, that, that's what I was saying. You can't build, uh, you can't build uh, any more land, right? So you, you look at densities and you look at development sites, but Marlon, from a, a cost standpoint, right? You, you look at the land costs and you, you run a gazillion uh, performance. Are you looking at any ways of making a little bit more efficient with these type of housings with materials or and, and that's the other thing that what what's 
once the interest rates start coming down and um, you know, we have a little bit more st- geopolitical uh, stability wow. and the logistical uh, issues hopefully start to dissipate, what do you think that that's going to do to materials and costs going forward? Do you think that's going to have an impact on how how they price these sites and and uh, how that's going to impact demand going forward? Yeah, I mean, I don't see the land price as the biggest challenge on the pro forma. It tends to reflect the market conditions and it moves with revenue traditionally. Not And again, I think the biggest challenge is usually, well, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the municipal charges and the surprises and the increases is the bigger challenge, even over the, um, the cost side and then the approval timelines, obviously. But no, construction costs are going to stay fairly flat next two years and they're going to go crazy. We've got one and a half million homes to build at some point, so one actually has to start building. So to me, I think all we're going to see is the price go up, which is then going to cause affordability challenges. And we're going to see that the land that people have bought that maybe they think they've overpaid for is actually going to end up being extremely good value, which is what you see time and time and time again. By the time we get for a seven-year approval, people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got land for that price. And when they bought the land, everyone was like, you guys overpaid for it. So it's this is just a small hiatus, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, and then it goes crazy again in Ontario. Too many people, not enough homes. We already don't have enough homes if we don't grow the population. So when we do grow the population, we need even more. So it's a good market if we could just get stuff built. So basically what you're saying is time cures everything? Uh, No, time's actually exacerbating the problem. Time could cure everything if we could get everybody out of the way that's making things take too long. The challenge is is there's a big lineup of people who oppose development. There was the one in the newspaper or online the other day in the report where they had a, CreateTO had a site, the city designated as affordable housing. They're on year 25 and still haven't started construction. Like, it's just ludicrous that we get into these spirals. And um, the projects out in Mississauga, where they're getting blocked now, they're the re- fairly recent land transactions, and they get blocked over height, even though the municipality can't block height. So I think that's part of the challenge you often see isn't necessarily the land cost in a, a pro forma, because that gets better over time and obviously helps out fund in terms of equity and stuff, in terms of increases. But it's that those delays in approvals are killing us. So you're saying the recent changes from the government policies on a, both on a municipal and provincial level hasn't helped the process? No, it nips around the edges, still doesn't go anywhere near as far enough. It's the first tentative step towards helping. It all helps, but then it's critical mass. For example, yes, yeah. uh, example Bill 23 on a purposeful rental 300 units might save more, $4 million in municipal fees. Well, if I'm 50 million in the hole in day one and by year 11, I'm still not making money. How do I support any land value in terms of a purposeful rental building if I'm doing intensification? So it's that. It helps a little bit, but not enough. So far, anyway. We we need more as of right zone. We right. need more areas on our avenues that are, are in our transit locations where developers don't have to go and fight for density when they're next to a subway station. We had this conversation when we were selling a site downtown, sitting on top of a subway station. The municipal planners were talking about they wanted to limit height to like 12 stories. And I said, if I if I don't put it here, where am I going to put it? If I don't put density on top of a, a subway, then show me where it should be. But affordability is that we've built these subways, we've built these transit corridors, we've spent our money. There should be significant as of right zoning along these corridors that a developer doesn't have to worry about fighting for the next five to 10 years 
for a site next to a subway for density. Right. And then from, from that process, Mike, you'll see a big boost to land values because you've now saved the developer two years of heartache and then planners and lawyers and all, all the studies required for all of that. So I agree. Like, why can't we be more like an international city like London or Paris where we have gentle intensification and we have a bunch of four, five, six-story buildings spread out across the, the city? without significant parking requirements. I think that would be another practical way to, to increase housing supply. And it doesn't have to be sexy glass and, and fancy architecture, just something that fits in nicely on the avenues um, within the neighborhoods that they are. And we need to get rid of this nimbyism. We are an international city. We need to approve housing a lot quicker to get going. Yeah, along subways with certain ridership, it should be a minimum height, not a maximum height. It's ludicrous that we've got a north-south subway that's getting packed and stacked in certain junctions. And as you go east and west, the density is fairly limited. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever that you can go out to the Danforth. We've got a major subway line and everything's two stories and they think four stories is tall. It's just defies any form of logic. We're, we're building new transit and underusing the stuff we already have, which, again, doesn't make any sense. We should be building and maximizing. Yes, agreed. I'm I'm in I'm in great support of the triplexes that are supported by Bill 23. And uh, why do we need residential single-family lots of 50 by 150 feet in the periphery of Toronto, Etobicoke, North York, Scarborough? We really don't have to have that when you can literally within 10 minutes walk to a subway station. There should be blanket zoning in those neighborhoods to allow for three-story buildings, full stop. Thank you, John, for for those comments, and and um, it sort of wraps up this session. And I think what we're going to do is is take on what um, we talked about with um, urban versus um, um, urban sort of rural growth into the the second session, and we'll get more into the densification as well as the pricing and and, and the demand from that perspective. So thank you, uh, Mike and, and John, uh, for joining us on this session, and let's um, we'll uh, continue with um, part two. Thank you, Thanks for having us. Thanks.